this episode of Desert Island Torah, we have the Zuchut of speaking to Rob Jeffrey Sachs. He is the founding director of Atid, the Academy for Torah Initiatives and Directions in Jerusalem and its Web Yeshiva.org program. A graduate of Yeshiva University, he is an associate editor of the journal Tradition, series editor of the Agnon Library at Toby Press and director of research at the Agnon House in Jerusalem. He also teaches at Amudim Seminary. He studied at YU and Yeshivat Hamiftar. Thank you so much, Rav Jeffrey Sachs, for joining us today. It's a real zakhut to have you with us. Thanks, Darcy. It's fun to be here. I'm glad to finally make it to the desert island. So many of my friends and colleagues have been here before. I'm surprised that they're not here with us on the island. So it's Desert Island Tara, three pieces of Tara that you would take to a desert island. What do they mean to you? Why are they so important to you? Really looking forward to finding out your three pieces and learning with you. So if we jump right in, should we go with your first piece? Sure, I will. But before I get into that, I just want to kind of preface how I went about thinking about your your assignment. Um, you know, this that old parlor game, uh, you know, what would you take with you to the desert island? What books would you take? What movies would you take? What, in your case, uh, much more admirably, which Torah you would take? I, I thought there are two ways to approach the question. And I assume that some of your guests in the past have, have done it in one of two ways. Um, you know, like the old, like what books would you take with you? Well, I, I must confess that that um, the Brothers Karamazov has been sitting up on my night uh, night table for a very, very, very long time. And if I didn't get to it over COVID, I'm doubtful that I'm actually going to make the effort. But if I was told that I'm going on to the desert island, I might take the Brothers Karamazov because when else am I going to have the time and luxury and space and lack of distractions to to actually get through that through that book? Or do you take the most beloved, well-worn, dog-eared books that you've read again and again and again? Because those are the ones that are going to bring you comfort. Uh, 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 you know, when you're all alone there on Robinson Crusoe's Island. So in thinking about your your challenge to me, I think that I I ended up going with the latter plan. Um, and, I, and I hope that our listeners won't think that my answers are, are actually a little bit banal. Uh, I'm not sure that they're going to take away from here, uh, you know, great insights and wisdom that they hadn't heard before. Uh, but it, it might explain something a little more about me, uh, or at least it helped me understand certain things about me. And if if our listeners want to eavesdrop on that on that conversation, they're welcome to. So the first thing is perhaps, you know, the most well-known piece of Torah out there, the first Rashi on Chumash. But I have to tell you why it's important to me. I uh, grew up in a, a non-observant home. Uh, I attended public high school in New Jersey. And following high school, I enrolled in the JSS program, uh, which was then the beginner's program at Yeshiva University. This was in in the fall of 1987. And although I had already made certain commitments to Jewish life and observance, and I had picked up a lot of knowledge along the way, I didn't really have any ability to, to make my way through the Jewish bookshelf on my own. And on the very first day of of the very first class uh, at at Yeshiva University, uh, the rabbi, a very a very beloved and important man, Rabbi Benji Yudin, who taught many generations of novice students, he was for many years, of course, the rabbi in Fairlaw, New Jersey, came in 
and we all opened up our chumashim. In those days, it was the old style mikraot gedolot, where the print wasn't so clear and Rashi was still in Rashi script, which I don't remember, you know, that I was really able to read Rashi script with any great facility at that time. And we learned the first pasuk, Bereshit in the beginning of God's creation of the heaven and the earth. And then we look at Rashi. And I don't remember how many days or classes we spent going through that very first famous Rashi on, on, on the Torah until we could unpack and decipher every word and then put the words back into some kind of overall meaning and, and message. And that work of rolling up our sleeves and going word by word, the act of learning to read and decipher a Torah text, left a profound impression on me. So much so that Rabbi Yudin had encouraged us to learn to memorize that, that first Rashi by, by heart, that very famous first Rashi, Omer Rabbi Yitzchak lo Torah the Torah doesn't really need to begin with the story of creation. It should begin in Exodus chapter 12 with the first mitzvah. After all, it's a it's a legal book. The first mitzvah about setting up the Jewish the Jewish calendar. Shehi mitzvah rishonash nitztava by Yisrael. Umatam patach bevereshit. Why does the Torah therefore begin with with the account of the creation? Mishum koach masav higid liamo. The proof text from Tehillim, from the book of Psalms 111, to tell us about the power, the strength, the might of God that he gave to his people, right, to give them the land. Uh, what does it mean that God's mighty power gave us the land? Because if the nations of the world should say that we Jewish people are thieves, that we've conquered, we've occupied, I think is the uh, word that gets thrown around a lot today. We've taken the land of Israel from, from other nations. That we conquered this land that was previously occupied by seven other nations. We can respond. No, no, no. The land belongs to God who created it. Who in his power. He created it. and He gave it to the one who was yashar, who was upright, who was straight, who was who was righteous in his eyes. Right? In other words, God may you may have once possessed it, but God took it and gave it to to us. So this this, this act of of um, making your way through that one paragraph, through the first Rashi, uh, what every small school child. Uh, had learned, but which I had not been fortunate to really encounter in a meaningful way until the verge of entering young adulthood, is something that has has stayed with me. A long time later, I went back and you know re-examined that in the way that repeated encounters with the same text always offers new insight. And it, it occurred to me that I hadn't thought very deeply about that chapter in Tehillim, chapter 111 in, in Psalms, which offers the proof text for, for Rashi's point. Uh, and uh, I came up with some novel insight. Your, your readers can find it. If they have the Google machine, they can look for, for a little article I published a while back called The Moral Imperative of the Strength of His Works. 
which actually caused me to reevaluate uh, the the kind of um, let's say Zionist boilerplate for which that Rashi is often uh, marshaled out. Um, in, in fact, the land grant of Eretz Yisrael to Yisrael, Yisrael, the word Yashar, Yisrael, Yud Shin Resh, it's right there in our name. Uh, that uh, he gives it Asher Yashar Be'enav. It's there in in that chapter also. The 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 the, the chapter of Tehillim is is addressed to Besod Yisharim Ve'eda. In the council of the upright, we're going to make this declaration about how God, uh, uh, how God uh, rewards the the righteous, punishes the the wicked, and and does what He wants to do, like giving Eretz Yisrael to the Jews. But it's conditional. We have to be Yeshari. We have to be straight and upright in order to to maintain it. Um, that's something that I've come to think about a little more carefully all these years that I've been living. I'm, I'm now living here in Israel almost almost 30 years. So that's a piece of Torah that has a lot of meaning to me, both because of how I first encountered it and how I've come to think about it differently, differently over the over the years. So I would say that's that's number one in the suitcase uh, getting off on, on on the desert island. So interesting. I love that Rashi. It's a classic, but it's so important. Um, Again, you spoke about like the idea of Yashar. I think then the tip actually calls Bereshit Sefer Yashar. Um, so there's a connection there. Um, also, I think what it's, it has to start with Bereshit um, as covered by Rob Soloveitchik. He presents why Lonely Man of Faith, classic, um, and just humanity. Um, it's something I love discovering and speaking about. Right. So yeah, it's a great, great choice. Right. Well, I mean, you mentioned the Nitziv. The Nitziv, of course, calls or nicknames Sefer Breshit, Sefer Yesharim, or Sefer Hayashar, I should say, uh, because of the acts of the Avot. In other words, it's it's he's also playing off these ideas, although he doesn't point to that Pasuk or that Rashi. But since you've mentioned Rabbi Soloveitchik and the Lonely Man of Faith, uh, that'll get us to our second piece of Torah, uh, which is which is something from the Lonely Man of Faith. And again, this intersects with a particular moment in my own journey into Torah study. Shortly before I arrived at Yeshiva University, uh, as a as I said, a public high school student, kind of making my way into observance and 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 Jewish study and and Jewish life and Jewish learning. Um, I came across The Lonely Man of Faith, which was then, had only been published in 1965 in tradition. Uh, little did I know that one day, uh, quite quite uh, unlikely, I would end up as the editor of tradition. I could not have imagined that uh, at the time in, in the mid-1980s. Um, but in 1965, before I was born, Rabbi Soloveitchik had published his monumental essay, The Lonely Man of Faith. I didn't know what the essay was about. And as a matter of fact, it was kind of hard until it, it was published in kind of standalone book form. It was kind of hard to get your hands on because unless you had access to to an old an old uh, uh, copy of, of tradition, um, the only way to get access to the essay was if a, a well-meaning NCSY advisor, in my case, uh, gave you a kind of blurry Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. They were passed around in these uh, kinds of uh, kinds of copies. Now I got to the essay completely by accident. 
as a young person who was beginning to think about questions of belief and faith and, and et cetera, I assumed this was the essay for me. First of all, it had the word lonely in it. And I was a little bit, although I had many friends, um, many very good friends, part of what invited me into the world of, of Jewish life were many of the young friends that I had made um, uh, along the way, some of whom have been guests here on the podcast. Um, but uh, but that's not at all the loneliness that's being described in the Lonely Man of Faith. And it had the word faith in it. And I had all different types of questions about about faith, um, about belief. But of course, that's not what the faith of the title is is either. There's something wrong with with every word in the in the title, or at least uh, I had misunderstood every word in the title. But nevertheless, in encountering the essay, uh, which which by the way, we should remind listeners. Uh, who are sometimes frightened away by Rabbi Soloveitchik's uh, vocabulary and his brilliance and and etc. The Lonely Man of Faith is is a perfectly accessible essay to even the novice reader. It, it was unlike some of his other uh, philosophical essays. It, it was pitched at a general audience, and uh, there's no intelligent reader, no matter how how new they are to Jewish learning who cannot make their way through the lonely man of faith. Here and there, you'll encounter an idea, a vocabulary word that may puzzle you. Uh, so, you know, we carry around the collected wisdom of civilization in our pockets. It's easy enough to look things up, uh, but everybody can make their way through the lonely man of faith. And the truth is, I've been teaching it now for many years here in uh, in Yeshivot and uh, Midrashot, here in uh, in Israel. As a matter of fact, this, this uh, at this very moment, I'm in the middle of of uh, teaching it, I'm wrapping up a, a course on teaching the Holy Man of Faith once again um, at Midrashat Amudim in in Yerushalayim, and um, and every time I make my way through it, I, I can't even count how many times I've been through it. One finds new depth and insight, even though the Holy Man of Faith is um, is really, I mean, it, this has been well documented. It's pitched to a general audience, not even necessarily to a Jewish audience uh, per se. Um, the the halachic material, by and large, by and large, the halachic material, uh, the specifically Jewish material in the in the essay is found below in in the footnotes, right? It, it's pitched as an examination of these two biblical chapters, uh, and uh, I know very many Christian uh, groups and students uh, and thinkers who've made their way through it, you know, and and found and found a profit in, in the endeavor. But there is one passage uh, that talks directly to what the purpose of halacha is. And even though I encountered the essay under false pretenses, looking for something else entirely, uh, I found this section and it had a, a very deep impact on how I thought about halacha and halachic commitment and what it meant to make those, those commitments to observant uh, life and created a kind of permission structure to do so. It's a section that begin that that appears at the end of chapter eight. In the uh, the chapters are divided somewhat differently from the original edition to the book editions. But in the uh, in the more commonly uh, circulated book editions that are around now, this is the end of chapter eight in the uh, in the Magid Press edition. Of 2012, it appears on page 57. I'll just I'll just read part of the passage with ellipses. The Rav says, 
if one would inquire of me about the teleology of the halacha, what's the purpose of, of halacha, of halachic observance and halacha as a system, I would tell him that it manifests itself exactly in the paradoxical yet magnificent dialectic which underlies the halachic gesture. When man gives himself to the covenantal community, the halacha reminds him that he's also wanted and needed in another community, the cosmic majestic. And when it comes across man while he is involved in the creative enterprise of the majestic community, it does not let him forget that he is a covenantal being who will never find self-fulfillment outside the covenant and that God awaits his return to the covenantal community. Now, readers of the essay, our listeners who, who know the essay well, know that these are the two communities of Adam the first, the majestic Adam, and Adam the second, the covenantal man, Adam the first, looking for 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 for, for dignity, looking Vikivshuha to subdue and to conquer, to go out boldly, and Adam two, the private, the inward, looking for redemption. Adam two, Adam is depicted in the second chapter of Genesis, is the lonely man of faith. And what he's saying is that, you know, at this point in the essay, he's already trying to wrap it up and remind us that this thought experiment where we imagined two different types of people are, are really two aspects of the human personality. The story of creation isn't told twice because of some uh, type of multiple authors of the Bible, God forbid, but because there are multiple aspects of the human personality. And that's why it's the story of creation is told twice, once in chapter one and once in chapter two. But now that we're trying to put the pieces of the puzzle back together, having spun uh, the the human specimen in this kind of centrifuge out to these disparate parts, we have to put him back back together again to understand that we are all Adam one, we are all Adam two. We are all what he writes in a different essay, also published in tradition called Majesty and Humility. We are all cosmic creatures we are all citizens of the world, and we are all specific, particularistic, place-bound, tradition-bound people. And you can be both. And that was an incredible idea to encounter. That the movement towards a life of commitment and observance and Torah study and, and mitzvot and Shabbat and you name it, did not mean I had to exit the world. And it didn't even mean that I had to somehow erase who I who I was. He goes on to say that the halakha considered the steady oscillating of the man of faith between majesty and covenant, between the big wide world and the particularistic Jewish world, not as a dialectic, but rather as a complementary movement. The halacha believes there is only one world, not divisible into the secular and hallowed sectors, which can either plunge into ugliness and hatefulness or be roused to meaningful redeeming activity. It's not either or, it's both. And to me, that's why this essay is, of course, the manifesto of what it means to be, a, a, you know, a modern Orthodox Jew, you know, for lack of a, for lack of a, maybe a better, better slogan or term or logo that's you know that's that's my religious worldview that's the community that that i and i'm sure so many of our our listeners opted into um and and i found great meaningful meaningfulness in in this and like i said it, it kind of created a, 
a permission structure to make that decision, to make those commitments, to walk through that door. And he, he ends by saying, to use a metaphor, I would say that the norm, in the opinion of the halakha, is the tentacle by which the covenant, like the ivy, attaches itself to and spreads over the world of majesty. Right? That the halakha serves to help us navigate between these two worlds, the, the, which aren't, after all, two worlds at all, but two aspects of the one world we, we live in. And that idea of the halakha's role in navigating between, between the universalistic and the particularistic, between the, the, the heavenly and the earthly, that's an idea, of course, which I discovered later uh, in his halachic man and in so many other writings. Uh, but it's important to note, of course, that he's, he, um, he's not so fond of Desert Island Torah because he <laughs> uses the idea of Robinson Crusoe as, uh, as uh, at least Robinson Crusoe cannot be an Adam one. Because Robinson Crusoe cannot achieve dignity. And the search for dignity is, is, a, very important, is a very important aspect of human life. And one cannot be dignified in outside of the parameters of community. Community is so important. So, so we'll say that you're doing something a little ironic. You're creating this, Darcy, you're creating this Torah of people talking about, this community of people talking about Torah um, on the desert island. But of course, it can't be done on a, on a desert island. Uh, Absolutely. And, and then I guess my the third the third idea is also connected to this. Um, somewhere along the line, I became, I, I guess, like many people who who spend time in the Beit Midrash. Of course, I became quite enchanted with the the uh, what what Rabbi Yitzchak Tversky, son-in-law of the Rav, uh, pointed to as uh, as law and philosophy. The dual modes of the Rambam's writing uh, in in the Mishnah Torah and and elsewhere, um, and one idea that that it, I don't know I don't know why it charms me, but the idea that we talk about Taryag Mitzvot, the six hundred and thirteen Mitzvot, such a core standard idea. Of course, not everybody signs on to this idea, but for our purposes, it's a fairly well known and well regarded idea that there's six hundred and and 13 biblical commandments. Uh, it's based upon the Pasuk, Torah Siva Lanu Moshe Morasha Kilat Yaakov, that, that uh, Moshe, Moses, uh, commanded us the Torah. Torah in Gematria, the system which assigns numerical values to every letter, is 611, plus the two mitzvot, the two of the first 10. The, the the first two of the ten Aserita de Bro, ten commandments, which were spoken directly from God to the Jewish people, six hundred and eleven plus two equals six hundred and and thirteen. Of course, that verse itself, Torah Sivalana Moshe Morashak Hilat Yaakov, it's it's the it's the inheritance, it's the heritage of the entire assembly of Jacob. Entire Jewish people have a place uh, in in the Torah, in Torah study. Um, that's, of course, the Shulchan Aruch codifies that that's the very first thing you whisper into the ear of your little baby. Uh, we just made a wedding. Our eldest son uh, just got married. Uh, you know, So it's an occasion for a lot of nostalgia uh, to think back, sunrise, sunset, how did, where'd those, where these 25, 26 years go? Who, who knows? Uh, but I remember the moment he was born. 
Uh, he was born on a Friday night in Yerushalayim. Uh, and I remember the first time I held him whispering into his ear, what? that that's exactly what we're supposed to do. It's the first message that we teach a little baby. And certainly the first thing we we start training him to say or her to say when they when they uh, learn learn to speak. But that idea of the 613 mitzvot, it's quite curious that the Gemara, the, the Talmud, Masechet Makot, towards the end of Masechet Makot, records this idea of Rav Simlai, that, uh, that uh, this tradition that there's 613, 613 mitzvot. Don't you think, you know, the Gemara, it's pretty long. There's a lot of Gemara. There's always another page of Gemara to learn. We never run out. And when we do, we turn it over and start again. Don't you think the Gemara could have added a few extra pages and list for us, catalog for us, what the 613 mitzvot are? It's so curious that the Gemara does not do that. As it leaves it to the work of later the Gaonim and the Rishonim to create these catalogs, these Sifrei mitzvot, the Monet mitzvot, of what exactly are the 613 mitzvot. So I've always been interested in these divergent opinions about how to count, first of all, how to count, what gets counted, the idea that there are obligations that 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 predicate all of the mitzvot, that the idea, the idea, the machloket, the very well-known machloket between Rambam and Ramban, uh, whether or not belief in God is a mitzvah. The Rambam counts it as the very first mitzvah. The Ramban says, no, obviously one must believe in God, but that's not on the list. That's the prerequisite. Right? Before we start talking about mitzvot, first, the idea that not everything that you have to do is on some kind of catalog. Right? The idea that there are supererogatory responsibilities. Right? There are things you're just supposed to know are right and wrong, whether or not we, we tell you. Anybody that knows anything at all about what God wants from us, what, what the Torah wants from us, should know that there are things that you should do, things you shouldn't do. And I don't need to legislate every detail. Because if we were to legislate every detail, it, it would be the end of the system. But among the very interesting debates over these topics, many of them, of course, circle on this axis between Maimonides and Nachmanides, Rambam and Ramban. One I mentioned, belief in God. Another, of course, is uh, the requirement to live here in, in Eretz Yisrael. Um, but one really interesting one is uh, for the Rambam, you know, believe it or not, there's no mitzvah to learn Torah, which is a remarkable idea because we invest a lot of energy in it. For the Rambam, if you look, if you look in Hilchot Talmud Torah, the Mishnah Torah, there's one mitzvah to learn and teach. It's not even two sides of the same point. Of course, in in uh, in Hebrew, the way the language works, learning and teaching are just two inflections of the same verb, lilmod ulilameh, that the purpose of study is to teach. Now, of course, not everything that we learn do we teach, but the idea that, the idea that Torah study is always meant to be in the service of Torah teaching. What the Gemara in Mesechet Tzukah says, uh, that's Torah Chesed. You know, in, in, um, 
in Eshet uh, Chayil, we sing Torah Chesed Al Lishona, right? That the that the Torah of kindness is upon her tongue. So the Gemara asks, Vachiyesh Torah Shel Chesed, the Torah Shel What does it mean, Torah Chesed, the Torah of kindness? What would be a Torah that is not of kindness? The Gemara says, Torah Lilamda. Torah aimed towards sharing, towards teaching, towards passing on. That is the definition of of Torah Chesed. And for the Rambam, it's the same. It's the same thing. And here, I guess we're running out of time. We have just a minute left. Let's go back to Rabbi Salavechik. Rabbi Salavechik has a very interesting idea about all this. The halacha is that before one studies Torah, we must recite Birkata Torah. The blessings recited once in the morning covers the whole the whole day of Torah study. Because Torah study is something that we're always engaged in. Unlike, let's say, other mitzvot, which you might do multiple times a day, or let's say the blessings that we, we recite, although it's a different category, the blessings we recite over food. If I say over my Wheaties in the morning, and then I go off to work, that doesn't cover the cookies I'm going to eat in the break room later. But because I've interrupted in the middle, I hit the reset button. But Torah, it's always latent. We're always learning. We're always engaged. The mind is always on. Sometimes it's a little more on the back burner, sometimes a little more focused and present. When one thinks about Torah, you get up in the morning. And, you know, a person like yourself, a person like so many of our listeners, the first thing we're doing is thinking about Torah. So how can you think about Torah before you've, you know, gotten dressed and washed your hands and said the bracha? The, the Shulchan Aruch says that when you think about Torah, you're meharher b'divrei Torah, in fact, you are fulfilling the mitzvah to study Torah. But you're exempt from the obligation to yet have recited the blessings. Why should that be? Either it's a mitzvah, in which case you have to recite the blessings, or it's not a mitzvah, in which case you're exempt from having recited the blessings. So Rabbi Soloveitchik says, yes, it's true. Thinking, merely thinking, Cognizing about Torah is, in fact, a, a mitzvah, but it's a lower level of mitzvah. Talmud Torah, Torah study in its proper form, in the form on which you're obligated to recite a blessing, is always dialogical. It's always something that's meant to be shared with someone else. That's the Torah for which you cannot participate unless you unless you recite a recite a, a blessing and that's torah that's speech and even if you're only talking to yourself right it, at least in potential it can be shared with with other people all torah is outer directed it transforms us but it's also meant to pass on to others Everybody who learns a little Torah, therefore, this is a message that I've heard many, 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 many times from my great teacher, Rabbi Chaim Bravender. Everybody who learns Torah is a teacher of Torah. You might not be Rabbi Soloveitchik. You might not be a great rabbi or a, or a talented morah. But everybody who knows something has an obligation to teach something. Everybody according to their ability. That's the very definition of what Torah study is what the mitzvah of Torah study is. Lil mod ulilamed together.
on both sides. So that idea I would take with me to the desert island because it's had so much meaning for me in my life and in my career, but it would make me very sad. It would make me feel undignified like Adam one, because I'd be all alone on a desert island with no one to share it with. But uh, as a thought experiment, I thank you for inviting me to your to your desert island, Dorsey. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really love that final message. I mean, the Gemara teaches in Brachot, I think, Ahmed Aleph, that one should not part from a friend without exchanging words of Torah. Um, it should be everything. And also Rambam in Hilkot Torah also says that like Torah is equivalent to all other mitzvot. So again, it's it's fundamental and essential, and I really connect to that. Um, but thank you so much for coming on and sharing really insightful pieces of Torah with us. It was a real zakat to learn with you. Thank you, Darcy. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Amisrael. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download and subscribe. And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Torah, get in touch at desertislandtorah at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.